Welcome to part five of the McFish Files. I'm your host, Christy, recording from my deathbed in Linwood, Washington. And joining me today from the Carter Subaru hot seat is Mike Frizzell. Hi, Mike. Hey, this might be the only time that being in the hot seat is actually better than being in the other seat, which is, happens to be a deathbed. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got lots of tea and orange juice and water, so we'll we'll try to get through this without losing my voice. Um, so before we jump into today's episode, I was wondering if you have anything to say about how the shows have gone so far. Uh, I have had a blast. I think each one has been more fun to do than the last one. And uh, I hope that people aren't having a problem with the tone because, you know, it's all this stuff had happened a long time ago and I was very sorry for it and and did my time and, and did feel bad for the people that needed to be felt bad for and still do. But I have to live my life and deal with uh, and deal with my memories. So I, I do it my way and that's uh, mostly choosing to remember the good things and the things that I accomplished and the fun times that I had. So uh, most of the feedback I've gotten has been great. I mean, everyone is enjoying the stories that I didn't get a chance to tell on TBTL because, you know, four four nights of interviews, I guess, just wasn't enough. There, There's a lot more <laughs> to these experiences, and I guess we'll find out more tonight. Yes, for sure. And also, I mean, you mentioned it on, oh, I don't know, all of them have run together, that if you live with so much regret and if you lived every day feeling sad and upset for what you did, that's where addiction lives. Like yeah. having those regrets and um, just living off that is, is when you start getting back into addiction to hide those feelings. Right. So. Yeah, right. Then you need to mask your feelings all the time and then, right. oh, there you are. And <laughs> right. now you're addicted and now you're doing more crimes. Right. Like an asshole. Right. <laughs> right. Right. All right. So today's clip is night five of TBTL interviews where Mike answers questions submitted by the audience. Let's play the clip and we'll come back and ask all the questions they didn't ask you. Well, I'm trying to get home, but it feels like another life. Yeah, I'm trying to stay strong, but sometimes I realize that the further I go, the more that I know that I want to go home. Uh, he's had a pretty interesting life story, um, and uh, it involved getting stuck on prescription drugs and then robbing banks, a lot of banks, then running from the cops, then eventually turning himself in and kicking drugs and going to federal prison for five years. Uh, that was uh, over a decade ago that he was out. And uh, of course, since then, we're happy to report. Has Have you had even a speeding ticket? No, I haven't uh, had any run-ins with the law at all. Um, and so uh, uh, he's been telling us his story this week, and we've been getting a lot of um, people emailing us in, calling and, and asking questions about things along the way that we may be neglected to find out about. So uh, we thought it would make sense to have um, Mike slash Drew uh, in here to uh, to answer some of them. So I guess um, how, should I just start reading through some of these emails, Jen, or should I take a call first? Um, I actually think maybe we should start by seeing if Mike has any. You're right. Thoughts on Thank you. The week. Yeah, Mike. What is your? You've now listened to the interviews, I presume. Yes. And this is the first time when you've ever 
told your story in this way. I'm sure people that you know are aware of this, your fiance among others. Yes. But to hear yourself on the radio laying this story out of this very intense stuff that really happened to you, what what was your impression of it? Is there any things you want to correct or clarify? or? Well, there are a couple of things that have come up from uh, folks that have been emailing me and uh, coming to my Facebook page. The The reason for me coming on the air and talking about it at this point in my life, it's, uh, it's sort of complicated, but I, I did want to say that it was last spring. I was on a flight and probably experiencing the worst turbulence that, that I've ever you know, experienced on a flight. And you know how the thoughts of mortality always go through your head when you're, when you're in something like that. And I, I was thinking, what is, what is the one thing that I wish I had accomplished that I have not yet accomplished? And I really had thought for many years that I wanted to write about this experience and leave it as sort of a legacy for my friends and family because it's hard to sit down with everybody that you know and everybody that's loved and trusted you and had faith in you to put your life back together. It's hard to sit down with every one of them and tell them your whole story. I just want them to know from beginning to end what my state of mind was and what why I was doing what I was doing. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I figured I was going to write about that. And then I had been talking to our f mutual friend, Bill Radke, over the years about uh, when am I going to tell my story? When am I going to tell my story? And then when I met you, um, you have this local radio show. And I, I was thinking this might be this might be the time. This might be the right venue to come forward and, and talk. And I, and I think enough time had passed in my life. And I think the 10 years, uh, 10 plus years since I've gotten out of prison, I've proven myself to the point where I'm not afraid anymore for someone who knows me either professionally or personally. I'm not afraid for them to know about that because I'm a different person now and I'm, I'm trusted and I should be trusted. Um, something that, that came up from a few different people and we may have contributed to this a lot because we're friends with you and we like you as a person. And, and I'm myself a jokey guy by nature, particularly when things are getting kind of heavy. Mm -hmm. And so we're sitting in there, we're having this heavy conversation at times. And so I tend to make jokes and, and be maybe light in a way that maybe made the whole thing sound somewhat glib. And we got some emails after the first night of people saying that they felt like you didn't sound very remorseful. What do you, what, what's your response to that? Well, I, I know it doesn't come across much on the radio and you and Jen sort of quickly stared in another direction when I was getting emotional, but, uh, yeah, there were a lot of times during that interview, and I think you could hear it on Wednesday night show that uh, if if you knew me, you'd know that I was crying. Um, the fact that it didn't come across, and the fact I, I regret the fact that that we sounded a little jokey at times, uh, but I don't think uh, I don't think we've disrespected the subject matter. Um, I think we could have talked more about addiction, but. I think that's more interesting to addicts and ex-addicts, the addiction talk, whereas for the general audience, which is obviously what you're trying to, to reach, I think the, the, the facts of the, the case, the criminal case and, and all the things that I, that I went through, 
that way are probably the more interesting thing. But I do I do regret uh, probably laughing a little bit too much, and you and you are a little bit too funny also. Well, I mean, I I, I have to say too that I, you know, I I listened back to the interviews and I was like, why do I have to do this thing where when when I feel like a little like something very intense and genuinely emotional is happening, I have to cut the tension with some kind of joke, which makes me maybe not well suited for doing interviews with emotional ex-bank robbers who are also friends of mine <laughs> because it so much I, I use attempts at humor. I wouldn't call it actual humor, but attempts at humor <laughs> as this way to leaven things, even when it's maybe not. And I was thinking, should I have just let it breathe more? Should I just have, have let you, if you're talking about a sensitive thing, start crying well, I, I sort of cry silently, so that's not well. That's you know. a, and I was like, but then that seems like it's manipulative in its own way. If I'm kind of just like, you know, he's crying right now, yeah, and it's sitting <laughs> right. here, you know. I mean, it's right. like, I don't, I, what did you I think? I think Jen? also in in the in our and all of us know this in our darkest darkest moments. There's still things that are absurd and hilarious mm -hmm. and funny, mm -hmm. and you can't. I think to to act like that's not also true is to lie as well. I mean, there were things in the story that were absurd and funny. And the fact that it got kicked off by Unsolved Mysteries is the absurdest and funniest of all. Mm -hmm. And it would have been a lie for us to not laugh about that. So I think we, you know, I think everybody did the best job they can. Um, well, a question that a lot of people emailed in about um, was uh, about your sobriety now. Mm -hmm. um, because this whole thing started for you because you were... Uh, addicted to prescription drugs. Right. Are you in a program? What's what is your 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 whole relationship with drugs and alcohol now? When I got out of prison, I was a regular for many years at NA, and uh, after I had, including prison, about eight or nine years of of sobriety, I I sort of drifted away from NA. The only. Um, the only time I've recently gone was when I was going in for surgery and trying to make a decision as to whether or not I was going to be taking some drugs um, post-surgery. And I went and got some support for that. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't particularly worried because I just I feel like I'm far beyond it. And I did end up taking the pills. And, it, and you know, as I mentioned in the interview, and I have no... Um, I have no desire to take pills. I, I, I believe I'm really far beyond relapse. Isn't that – I actually haven't ever been to an AA meeting, but is that against the – I mean the idea behind – or NA in your case mm -hmm. is that you're an addict for life and you have to keep it – you have to be ever vigilant, right? Is that – or are you – I mean are you yeah. technically in violation of their program because you're saying I'm better now? Yeah, and, and when, I, when I did go to that meeting, that was what – that was a big topic – of discussion, uh, there was when you went some, recently, yeah. trying to figure out if you should take pain meds for your shoulder. Yeah, right. and it was a real split room. Um, you know, there were a lot of people that just said, you know, you trust yourself and and do what you think is right, and there were other people just, you know, would take that militant stance. Um, I mean, I guess the proof is in the pudding for you right now. I mean, do you you don't feel you're not somebody who gets up every morning and has to kind of really resolve to not fall back into being a prescription drug addict? No, I think the the roughest days were when I uh, just got out of prison, when I was able to get access to pills. And, uh, you know, I still, it was still relatively fresh in my mind, the uh, 
the great way that they could make me feel. But as every day passed and I was rebuilding my life, the that sort of the cravings just completely went away. So it seems like I mean, maybe I, I'm I'm not Doctor Drew here. Uh, I'm not an addiction medicine specialist, but I mean, it seems like for you that was a time in your life where you had a lot going on emotionally and otherwise. And these pills filled of uh, did something to you, but you think that maybe you've changed, kind of emotionally, organically. You've changed as a person to the point where you're no longer somebody who's susceptible to that kind of stuff. Well, I felt like doing doing the thing where I quit and doing the thing where I turned myself in and I went to prison. I faced a lot of tough days. Uh, it it made me grow up as a person, and it made gave me the confidence that I could handle anything that came up on any particular day. I didn't need any of that stuff anymore. I started it when I was a kid and I view it as, you know, it was a part of a misspent youth and, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm way past it. I'm way done with it. Uh, We're talking to uh, Drew McFrizz, who's a, uh, a friend of TBTL. And uh, this whole week we've been playing uh, interviews that we did with him about his time um, as a drug addict and bank robber and then in federal prison. Uh, if you uh, have listened to the series and if you had some questions, you can give us a ring now, uh, 877-710-CAIRO, 877-710-5476. Uh, let's talk to Allie, who's in New York. Hi, Allie. Hey, Luke. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, well, I, my question for Drew is, have you been able to um, reconnect with your stepdaughter since um, you got out of prison? Yes. Um, about three or four months after I turned myself in, I was still in King County Jail. And I was sending letters to my wife and my stepdaughter, who was six at the time. And after... A lot of those letters and a couple of phone calls uh, to my ex, she was able to, to some extent, forgive me and allow some contact with uh, my stepdaughter. And mainly, it was a it was a really great gesture on her part, uh, on so that her daughter wouldn't think that I'd completely disappeared. You know that people people don't do that, and, and that I still cared about her even though I couldn't be around for her. So we did reconnect and we've kept more or less in contact over the years. In fact, I went to uh, New Orleans last year to visit her um, and help her through. Uh, She was having a tough time and I I went down there to help her through that. And she's doing pretty well and we do keep in contact. Are you kind of like um, an uncle to her? If you had to sort of try to assign a traditional role yeah. that you fill in her life yeah i'm i you know she no longer calls me dad or or anything like that and we're more uh friends and and uh yeah i, I would i would characterize it more as as friends and possibly some some sort of uncle relationship but uh she knows that that uh i care about her and that i'm there for her if she needs me was that do you think that the being estranged from her was uh, the emotionally the hardest thing about this whole experience for you? It was absolutely the hardest thing. When I was on the run in San Diego, whenever I'd see a father and a, and a daughter together, uh, who just break me down, you know, it was one of the, I didn't want to be seen in public, but one of the reasons I didn't even want to go in public is because when I'd see something like that, it, it was just so raw and I felt so guilty that, um, you know, I'd just be a grown man just standing in the street crying. 
Allie, any other questions? Um, that's really it. I'm just, just, you know, like I wrote on your wall, Mike, I just, this entire thing has been really eye-opening, and it just makes me kind of respect you more as a both, a, you know, a TV tale listener and just as a grown-up in general. Thank you, Allie. Thanks a lot for the call, Allie. Hey, no problem. All right. Night, you guys. All right, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. I, uh, <laughs> respect you as a TBTL listener. <laughs> I, I I love the affection that the tens lavish on us, but I don't know if TBTL listeners should ever be considered as some kind of mark of honor. If there were a yes, ranking, maybe I moved but, up. You know? Yeah, that's uh, that's not that's not what I mean. I misspoke, but I just mean that the, the world is you know a very important, very big place, and someone I, I'm I'm constantly moved by how seriously people take the, their TBTL listenership. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Okay, do you know who's online too, John? I do. That is John and Vashon. Okay, let's talk to uh, John and Vashon. Hi, John. Hello. Um- Mike or Drew? Yes. I'm not sure which, but um, anyway, um, I am a mental health professional, and I spent a number of years working with banks, um, providing post-trauma services to tellers, you know, and staff after bank robberies. And I was just wondering if you have ever talked to, uh, I understood you wouldn't talk to people who you had robbed, because you'd spend a lot of time away, but, but if you've ever talked to people who'd gone through robberies at banks... Uh, I've not talked to uh, any victims groups. I, I, I'm actually not even aware that that such a thing would exist. But when, uh, and, and I'm sure you know this, John, when you go through your sentencing, uh, there are victim statements, and yeah, um, some of the uh, tellers were in attendance at my sentencing, and uh, they declined to speak. But I did read their statements, and the judge read some of their statements. And that is one of the, uh, besides what what I did to my family, it's a it's a huge regret of mine is is causing uh, fear in those people because as I knew I was no actual physical threat to them, I was implying it, and I was you know they, as far as they knew I was going to hurt somebody if things didn't go my way, and I I I feel terrible about it, and if there's you know if there's anything that I can do now. I'd be glad to do it if there if there are you know people that you know need to hear from from someone who put people through this and and need to hear my state of mind. I'd be happy to do it. I'm not sure there are groups like that that exist, but but um, um, you know I'm aware of the whole range of responses of, of people who work at banks to things like this, all the way from uh, like you said, the innocuous robbery where somebody just goes in and hands a note and walks out, and nobody in the bank knows it's been robbed until they pull a trap, all the way up to to shots fired or something like that. And and um, um, I, I said I don't know any group that would do that, but um, it may it may provide something for you or them to be able to talk with someone who's been through that anyway, because. Um, well, John, it's John. It's interesting that you would um, that you would bring that up, uh, like uh, victims groups and things like that. And by the way, thanks for the call, John. Because uh, we've got an email here from a, a listener who didn't want us to uh, use their name, but uh, they say uh, I want to thank you, especially Drew, for the interview series this week. Aside from being really interesting, this series has been particularly affecting to me. Uh, when she was in college, long before I was born or thought of, my mom had a summer job as a bank teller. Uh, one day, a man walked in and robbed the bank at gunpoint. Uh, Drew mentioned the moment of shock and question in the eyes of the teller at the first bank he robbed. Uh, When the man announced he was robbing the bank, my mom made some movement and said something along the lines of, are you serious? And he fired. 
Uh, I don't know if he fled then or if he got away with money. My mom's memory is understandably shaky about that. Fortunately, she was okay uh, in the end. Um, like Drew, that man robbed banks to pay bills. Unlike Drew, he was not, to my knowledge, an addict. He was a pillar of his community with a wife and a family. He coached Little League. Uh, he later killed himself by jumping off the Tappan Zee Bridge, leaving a note that listed his crimes and mentioned my mother. I don't know what led to his suicide or if my mom's shooting contributed to it. Apparently, uh, that was the only time he hurt anyone during his robberies. Uh, this isn't a subject we talk about much in my family. When I uh, have thought about it, I've tended to focus on the man and how horrible he was. The fact that this was his livelihood and that he coached children and had a family made me hate him all the more for what I perceived as his hypocrisy and deviousness. Hearing Drew's interviews this week, I had begun to have a slightly different perspective. I'll never know if this man, like Drew, was basically a good person. I have no way of knowing what led him to become a bank robber or to shoot my mother but now i can think of him as someone who almost certainly loved his family and was undoubtedly mourned by them so thank you for removing uh, a little hate from my life wow that's an amazing story i'd never heard about that yeah i mean i guess <clears throat> when you hear from somebody like you uh i think you realize that whatever whatever someone's doing from a bank robber to you know any other sort of devious behavior that person, for whatever reason, is doing this stuff, but they are still an actual person, even somebody like a rapist. And you, I think that when someone's violating the law, we just think of them as a sort of bad guy. And, and of course, what they do is really harmful. But there are there's a real person that's really doing these things for some reason, however terrible that might be. And I guess for, for this listener, that was you know something that was kind of cathartic for them. So, And it, it uh, ripples in, in both directions. The, the, the act... You know the um, the crime that you do affects the people that uh, that are in the bank or wherever you're doing your crime, but it also ripples the other direction into that person's family and 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 friends. When mm -hmm. you know when finally the truth is found, you know it's just as devastating kicking back that way. Um, well, what we need to do here is take a short break, but uh, when we come back, I want to ask uh, Mike about. If anyone uh, in his life or an extended life heard about this series or if this is if there have been any ripples um, and because one of the listeners Googled you and wants to find out um, how you deal with what comes up when people Google your name. Um, so uh, we'll we'll ask about that in a moment. We're going to take a short break, probably do a bit of news and continue our conversation with Drew McFrizz. Uh, Jen, you're also manning the what's it called, Drew? The Comcast Inbox. Right, which is just email. Somewhere Rod Arquette is shedding a tear of joy. <laughs> about the Comcast inbox? About how wonderful it is as a way to communicate with us. Oh, I use the Comcast inbox all the time. <laughs> when I'm at home, sometimes I'm thinking, I need to talk to the host, but I think, well, I'm not going to call. I'll just use the Comcast inbox. Absolutely. And Jen, you are, you're, uh, you're watching that. So if you just want to go to MyNorthwest.com and, and send, us a, uh, send us a query through there, you can, you can do through that as what? well. Uh, I think I think people know what we're talking about. Okay. The Comcast inbox. Right. Okay. We're going to um, let's see. Uh, we're going to take a break for the news coming up here in a moment. But as I said, when we return from that, I want to read an email from uh, listener Carrie um, about. I guess I guess this uh, this person Googled your name, which I actually haven't done. But does it turn up? Your actual story or some part of it? It may start to now, but up until now, uh, not so much. Oh, okay. Well, um, uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll read 
Carrie's email, and uh, we'll uh, get to some of your phone calls, and we'll we'll plot on through some of these other questions people have submitted. Um, this is TBTL on News Talk 97.3, Cairo FM. Our website is mynorthwest.com slash TBTL, where you can also listen to all of the uh, previous interviews that we aired uh, featuring Drew. They're all conveniently located in one place. A uh, good way to spend a rainy Saturday afternoon. Maybe tomorrow. Uh, we're going to take a break for news and come back with more TBTL in a moment. Uh, we're talking to Drew McFrizz. Uh, that's his, his TBTL name. His real name is, is Mike Frizzell. You know, there's an interesting story. Well, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but it's certainly coincidental, I think, that um, when I was in college and I worked as a work-study student at KUOW, um, I had a friend who was a fraternity brother of yours, Drew, this guy, Bill Radke, who's a radio person that people in Seattle probably know. And he would read me these letters from you that you would write him about the Sonics mm-hmm. and like, like, uh, Aaron, Aaron Williams and being like a weird looking guy or, uh, you called David Wingate. You said, word up, cameo. Now stop fouling Clyde Drexler. He would just read these typed emails from his buddy, the bank robber in prison. And I, I mean, typed letters and I would be cracking up. And so, uh, you know, it was it was very weird how life works that it came full circle to where you became, you know, a listener of the show and we became friends and everything. But it was I think it was meant to be mm-hmm. considering that I was appreciating your humor from even behind the walls of uh, of Sheridan. Um, all right. Uh, email from a listener, Carrie. Uh, I give kudos to uh, Michael, I think that's his real name, well it is, for his ability to be so upfront about his life. I too have such a path with addiction, the mind led to the demise of a profession, think healthcare, uh, which has left me with an okay life and an okay income after much pain and incarceration. That being said, please ask him how he deals with the entire embarrassment that comes up when someone Googles your name. I can't date online and feel really isolated by the aspects of my crime which means that anyone Googling my name locates my bad deeds. Maybe I just need to come to the roller skating party and and meet someone in person. Well, Carrie, I'd use a different name when you get to the roller skating party because I don't know if you've exactly put the best sales pitch out, but I'm joking. I'm joking. Remember, I make jokes when I'm nervous. Uh, so right now, though, for you, Mike, you're saying that it's not – this is not something that's readily available. Like, Like if somebody Googles your name, they don't get a whole laundry list of stuff. Well, they – until now – which I'm, I'm sure things are going to change after this series of interviews. Until now, it hasn't turned up a whole lot. You really had to be diligent to turn it up. I had uh, when when I first started talking to Emily, she knew almost right away that I was writing this book. So that was that was no problem. She you know accepted that right off the bat. But as far as uh, dating before that. Um, it was difficult to find the information because I hadn't spoken out and mm-hmm. ev- all, all of my crimes and all of the news reports of my crimes and everything happened in 1993 or before. And that's sort of just on the brink of when a lot of stuff started to get archived and mm-hmm. and uh, put online. So you really had to dig deep, deep, deep. And, and really all you might turn up that, that I found anyway was uh, an interview that I did with Bill on uh, Weekend America, which I, I remember that, but that was it was much more vague, right? Right, and I, and I didn't use my real name, but for some reason somebody had made that link, and it was it was deep on the list, but it was there. Hmm. Uh, Jen, do you want to throw in a question from the Comcast inbox or someone sure who called do. in and didn't want to go on the air? 
Yeah, uh, Frank called in and wanted to know, he felt like we glossed over what it was like for you when you first got out of prison in terms of reentering society, getting a job, um, you know, dealing with your family and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. With a, really, the, the stuff with my family uh, was mostly resolved, uh, friends and family, was mostly resolved while I was in prison. I was able to repair uh, most of the relationships and, and anybody that didn't, you know, that I couldn't repair a relationship with by the time I got out, that relationship was over. So when I got out, it was more, the struggle was more or less, um, sobriety and, um, getting used to the fact that, uh, I was going to be starting from the bottom, uh, with about a month left in my incarceration, I was at FDC SeaTac, which was a new jail that we just opened up in, uh, uh, it's down near the airport, of course. Uh, but with about a month left, I, uh, acquired a job as an accounting clerk and a, um, an assistant to a marketing person at a restaurant management company, and it was for $8 an hour. And that's where I started. And I think I mentioned in the interview how nervous I was and that, you know, there there were a lot of times that first morning when I went to work where I felt like turning around and just going back to the halfway house and, you know, somehow saying, just take take me back. Did you get that job through some kind of connection? Yeah, um, my my brother-in-law was uh, an executive in that company, and what he did was he didn't he didn't just give me the job. What he did was he got everybody in the company together and explained my story and asked if they would be comfortable uh, with me working there. And if it wasn't unanimous, then he wasn't going to give me that job. But uh, and he he stepped out of the room and let them talk about it and. Then they decided that it was okay, and and I also mentioned during the interview that they couldn't have been nicer. They were fantastic to me, and it really was jarring. Hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Jonathan, Ann Arbor, Michigan, says a uh, question for Mike. Because of your addiction, you went through a lot of horrible stuff and put a lot of other people through horrible stuff. Uh, knowing how uh, clean your life is now, if you'd been able to contain things so that out of college you were a high-functioning, non-criminal, low-level-of-pills addict, but an addict nonetheless probably forever, would you have taken that path? I don't think that's even a a real possibility because with most drugs, and especially with these opioids, your your tolerance builds so quickly that... You know, within two weeks, you're taking another pill. Within two weeks, you're even taking another and another. And by the time I turned myself in, I was taking 20 to 24 pills a day. And I, there was never really a time when I was, um, my thoughts, I could put my thoughts together well enough to hang on to a job or be a high functioning person. Mm-hmm. What kind of restitution did you end up paying? Well, that's another thing uh, I probably should have let off with tonight is, you know, we, we've been laughing and we've been glib about about some aspects of this. But one thing that is no joke is is that you do have to pay fines and you do have to pay fees and you do have to pay restitution to a crippling degree. In fact, until just the last couple of years, restitution has been something that, you know, has severely limited me financially. I'm still not a homeowner. Um, 
I, I don't want to get into the exact dollar amounts, but it is, you know, um, if you rob some banks, they do expect you to pay money back. You know, it is, uh, even though it's insured, you know, and you want to say, oh, yeah, that, that's all insured. Well, they still want it back. And and they'll get as much of it uh, from you as they can. Um, would how, can you even guess at what percentage of what you stole you'll you've you've ended up paying back I, roughly? I have I have uh, I have exact figures that I, that I can um, give people if they want to go to my Facebook page and what a novel use for the social networking <laughs> site. But but uh, I. From speaking with my probation officer uh, back in the day when I was released uh, from probation, he made it pretty clear that it's not something that I should be talking about. Really? Mm -hmm. Because if if someone, it's just, you could just get in trouble or they could try to come after you for more money? Well, it's, it sort of goes back to the same reason where when I had the robbery where I got lucky and got all that money, um, they didn't they didn't put the dollar amount in the paper. I see. Um, they just don't, they're not comfortable with, people talking about the dollar amounts and I'm not trying to raise my profile with with the FBI or sure. or, or with the, you know I don't you know I I don't mind people knowing the my personal details of this but the financial stuff um it'll stay private but I, like I said I'll, I'll give it to you individually but not over the air suffice to say it was as you said crippling it was a huge huge you know amount of money based on what you you're making yeah like every month yeah, I mean, first eight years after I got out, I lived in a month-to-month -month apartment in a bad area uh, in Tukwila, and you know it was just a fact of life that I just never had any money. Mm -hmm. And you have a good job; it should be stated. Yes, right. Like you, you have you've worked very hard, and you've risen through the ranks, and you you manage people now. You're the boss of people. Yes. But you're still bearing the financial effects of of paying back for the crimes. Yeah, I'm just getting off the mat now. I had a practical question for you because I've been to the bank twice this week and I don't think I'll ever be to the bank the same again since this interview, you know, you just look at it differently. And I'm I'm confused about how when I'm standing in line at the bank, I can pretty much see what transaction is going on at the counters. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're in line, but you can kind of see what's going on. I don't understand how people were putting up piles of money on the counter and you were packing them into a backpack and nobody noticed that was going on. Well, when you're... Uh when you're going up to the teller, depending on where the teller is in relationship to the line, you can position your body in such a way and use whichever hand you need to use to shield uh, what's going on. So I, I really never felt like anybody behind me was really seeing what was going on. And, and even if they did, the teller is putting some stuff on the counter and I'm taking it as they set it up there. It isn't as if they throw the entire stack up there and then I go through it. I go through it as it comes across the counter. I feel every pack of bills as it comes across the counter to make sure there's no bait and no um, no uh, radar chips or whatever they call them. Die packs and all that kind of stuff. Die packs. So I'm sure that also it has to do with this thing that we talk about a lot, which is that the the, the human mind kind of seeks a logical explanation for things, <clears throat> you know, and a bank robbery is illogical. You know, it's like when somebody walks into a place and starts shooting it up, most people say, I thought it was a joke because you can't imagine someone's really shooting up your high school, but you could imagine there was a bad joke about it. And so most people probably would just assume that whatever was going on there was falling within the, the normal range of behavior because mm -hmm. for it to be a robbery that you're standing there watching would be so mind blowing. I think there's an element of that. Yes.
Um, here's a lesson uh, and, uh, from the Comcast inbox from uh, Joshel. Uh, can you tell me where he spent his federal time? Well, you've said it was FCI Sheridan in Oregon. Right. There, I, I spent my time, I mean, I spent a few nights in different jails being transferred around, but the majority of my time, my first seven months before sentencing were spent in King County Jail, East Nine, Upper Sea. Shout out. And then uh, I spent uh, about three plus years, maybe uh, four years at FCI Sheridan, um, which is the medium security uh, prison in Sheridan, Oregon, which is a couple hours south of Portland. And then when uh, FDC SeaTac uh, opened up, they brought up inmates to uh, to get that facility open. And I was one of the first in, inmates uh, in there. And, and the reason they brought us up was to to finish off the building, to do some work on the building and to work um, outside of the unit. But what happened was once I got to FDC SeaTac, they looked at what's called my jacket, which is, uh, which is my paperwork, and they figured out that I was a medium-high security inmate because of I implied to have a weapon, and I wasn't allowed to leave my unit. Mm-hmm. So I ended up being the unit orderly for the last nine months of my sentence and, you know, getting up and serving meals and, and doing all that at this uh, at this high rise. It would that that was not a great way to finish my time, but it did make me anxious to get out. Yeah. Well, Josh L continues. Uh, I might be a source for your show next time you do this. I'm getting ready to spend five years fed time myself. Uh, it's a whole different perspective when you're waiting to plead, find out what you get, and then the way it controls your life while you're waiting, tax evasion and wire fraud for mm. him. Do you have any advice for this guy, Josh L., who's about to go do five years in federal prison? I would I would say uh, if if you're not currently – well, obviously, you've got the Comcast inbox, so you're not sitting at King County Jail waiting to be sentenced, so you're probably uh, out and you're going to be going to a prison camp. I would – Try to get in touch with someone who'd been in camp, especially if you're if you're from around here, you're probably going to the camp outside of the prison that I was in in Sheridan. I would find somebody and just uh, seek out their advice on uh, how to handle yourself there. You shouldn't have any problem if you if you're as you know you seem to be very on top of it. I don't think you're going to have a huge problem. Um, you, you did you'd, say during the interviews though that. There is no instruction book when you show up. Right. And so the most jarring thing is just not – you literally don't know where you're supposed to go stand, mm-hmm. who you're supposed to talk to, where your bed is. It's like you have to figure it all out. Right. And that's why I'd say find somebody who's who's been there. And, and I did know a little bit because when I was at King County Jail, there were people coming back and going to court on new charges and things like that. There were people that, that uh, had been to FCI Sheridan, and I did know some stuff – and I, I probably, you know, looking back, I would have sat them down and quizzed them about everything because I really thought that there'd be some sort of handbook or guide or something when they pushed me out on the compound, but there wasn't. So that's my, that's my advice is to to find somebody and really, you know, put them through. What's your day? Tell me where do I stand? Where do I go? What's the first thing I do when I hit the compound? Uh, we're going to take a, a short break here, and then when we come back, we'll wrap up our uh, our questions for uh, Drew McFrizz. Uh, talking about his his time in in prison and uh, his experience robbing banks and paying restitution and uh, and all that stuff. Uh, Jen, you have another question. Somebody submitted uh, something that came up repeatedly, and uh, this uh, one was from uh, EJ, who is a retired banker, who said that um, you know 
Luke and I really bear the fault of this, and it's something that the media does all the time, which is to give too much how-to information. And that was something that really kind of weighed on me all week, and I wanted to know what Drew thought. Do you think that, that we gave too much information about, you know, God forbid, giving information to someone about how to rob a bank? There's, I think there's two ways to look at that. I, I think on its surface, yes, we showed them, we told them how to rob a bank. I, in this information age, though, I don't feel like that informa- that that information is too far away from anyone's fingertips to start with. What uh, The part that I actually don't feel that bad about is if someone is going to do a crime for money and doesn't doesn't want to hurt anyone um you know that's that's the way that's the way I did it and that's the way you know we we laid it out if 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 someone has a choice of um standing behind someone at the ATM machine and putting a gun to their head and and taking their money or you know, walking up to somebody with a note and having them hand over money as they're trained to do, you know, I'd much rather, you know, them choose the less dangerous situation. But I know that sounds that sounds terrible. And I, you know, please, please don't commit a crime. If if I could, if people could take one thing away from this, it's that if you're out there listening and you can see yourself in any part of my story, at any stage of this story, if you can see any of yourself in it, if you're struggling with addiction and you feel like it's hopeless, it's not. You can you can pull the nose up. You can do it. My my other question for you um, was that, you know, we live in this age, which I think is the last maybe 30 years of, you know, don't regret anything. Never look back. You're you're everything brought you to where you are today that that we hear that all the time. But, you know, anybody who's listened to the last four days knows that you feel guilt and you feel regret. And I'm just wondering how you deal with that on a day to day basis. Well, I've talked about this on on Bill's radio show, and, and that's you. You cannot live in guilt every day. Uh, I I feel the guilt when when I'm talking about it and when I relive it and when I um when I talk to the people that were directly affected and were actually on the subject. You can't live like that every day cuz that's where the addiction springs back on you. I mean, the only way I'd be able to deal with that guilt uh you know, without a, an unbelievable amount of, of support, you know, going to, to N.A. five times a day. The only way I'd be able to deal with that guilt is by numbing my brain. So um, I can't live like that. I think the only thing that, that should drive me is to live a good life so that, you know, I, I can contribute enough on the good side to make up for all the terrible things I did. Is that something that you you do think about on a daily or weekly basis because my experience of knowing you is that you're just one of the nicest um you know like really generous people that I've met and you you don't seem to have a mean bone in your body um is that because you're trying to balance things out karmically are you a different person than you were like in high school and college has your personality fundamentally changed i think anybody that knows me from those days knows that i have fundamentally changed that i am a much a nicer person. I think the reason people used to hang out with me at the time, at those times, was because I was fun and I was funny and I, you know, I had a great time. But the reason they've stuck with me afterwards is because I have changed and and I am a much uh, nicer person and more considerate of others and and their feelings. So, um, you know, like like 
Jen said, no regrets. Well, yeah, I have a lot of regrets. But one thing that I don't regret is the fact that this process has beaten the jerk out of me. Hmm. Um, now that you've come on this radio show and um, uh, told your story and used your real name and, you know, people are kind of who you haven't ever met are speculating about your life and talking to their families about it. Do you feel like you're whatever it was that you were hoping to accomplish with this or or, you know, I guess that's the word accomplished with this. Do you feel like, do you feel good about having done these interviews about the fact that now everyone knows your story or are you still a little scared about what the repercussions might be? I think that's a story that's sort of yet to be told. I, I feel better about it than I thought I would. Listening to the interviews, they went um, better than I thought they were going when I, when I was going through them. Uh, but I think the repercussions it's a story to be told and and i don't i don't dread it in fact i hope people will approach me if they have questions uh and and if if you're afraid to talk to me about it and you know about it please don't be cuz i'm you know i'll tell you anything you want to know have you been getting the the tens are a pretty tight knit group they're like they're the like really super core tens you know mm -hmm. who are, are literally probably 10 people and uh you guys are all friends, and I mean, you met your fiance through this real, uh, you know, kind of close knit group of people. What's the reaction been from the tens who had no idea this was your story? Are they just Facebooking you, going, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> Mixture of uh, shock and uh, and support. I mean, I, I think you know a lot of them just feel like. We all need to to support each other. We're all, you know, the, your your show has brought a lot of people together, and you know, the people that it's brought me together with have been a great source of support, and and has made this process easier for me. Well, and maybe if that's the takeaway message, somewhat from this whole thing, it's that we're all kind of damaged goods, you know, <laughs> like yeah. everybody associated with the show who listens to the show who works on the show and uh a little bit of understanding um about you know each other and and the fact that w we all come to this thing with a certain amount of baggage is probably a good thing mm -hmm. so thanks a lot well thank you for for this whole thing luke i appreciate it welcome back um, tonight's new segment is the Wagoneers have questions. These are all these have all been submitted by you, the listeners, and thank you so much. So I could take a little rest on coming up with more questions. Um, I've I've kind of put these into three different parts. One is the robbing. Uh, a lot of questions about the bank robbing and how that went. Um, your life in prison, and then what it was like once you got out. Mm -hmm. So are you ready for this, Mike? <laughs> okay. No, but I've committed to it, so I have to follow through. <laughs> Let's go. All right. Um, did you spend the bank's money freely, knowing there would always be more? Or did you feel like you had worked hard for that money, so you were more thrifty? I wasn't any more or less thrifty or cheap than I am normally. I hated Well, you, you're a banks. cheap bastard. <laughs> I am cheap. I I I try to live cheaply. I am cheap. I will spend on things that are worth it, but uh, I'm not someone who spends money lightly. And especially because I hated robbing banks so much, um, I was not someone who, you know, oh, I just robbed a bank. Now I'm going to, let's 
let's treat everyone to the red lobster, you know, like <laughs> cheddar base for not, everyone. <laughs> I was not that way. Um, it just, uh, it wasn't in me to do that. I hated doing it. And when I did have that bigger score, that $45,000, it wasn't, you know, I just thought this is a relief. I don't have to do this again for a while. Yeah. And, and if you hadn't gotten caught, like you ended up having to buy a car and pay a bunch of bills that you probably wouldn't have done mm-hmm. because your ex-wife found out. She found the money. You could have lived off that for a, a <laughs> lot longer if she hadn't found out. Yeah, she really did need a, a new car, though. So uh, I was probably going to do that. But um, we ended up buying some furniture that I think I wouldn't have bought. Uh, there <laughs> well, were some also, things that I felt pressured into buying once that money was found, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you would have started spending a lot of money, and it that would have been a giant red flag to everyone in your yeah. life, because yeah. you're known as a thrifty guy, right? Like, like Rick, right. Rick was talking about me whipping out money and not wanting change or whatever. <laughs> I, that seems apocryphal to me, but um, but <laughs> you were trying I to impress that, someone. Right, exactly, exactly. It's just twenty bucks. But had I done that in in my life with people who knew me really well, yeah, they would be like, "Ah, something's up here." <laughs> you just had twenties coming out of those cargo shorts all over the place. Twenties uh, uh, and fives. You... I had a lot of fives. <laughs> That's right, fives. Um, did you gamble with some of the money? If so, were you hoping to win big so that you didn't have to rob any more banks? No, I didn't do a lot of gambling during that era. The only time I did do some gambling was when I took that $5,000 in fives to Reno for a day <laughs> and like bet both sides of every game that was on the slate um, so that uh, I could get back real like hundreds and twenties to easily get them into my bank because I didn't want to be the guy showing up at my credit union with a ton of fives when it was known that a five thousand dollars in fives had been stolen right from right. a bank in Linwood, I think is yeah. where it was. Yeah. That's what we call a salmon colored flag in the business. <laughs> right. right. Um, and then and then I, I guess I did do some gambling um in Mexico um when I was a fugitive. I would I wouldn't bet both sides. I would just make some bets on some basketball games and then cross back to go to my apartment and hide out and just watch watch basketball games. Did the police or the or the feds or the FBI try to indict others, dealers, family members? No, there I left no evidence of of anything. I my family members knew nothing. I left no evidence of uh drugs, connections, anything like that. Um I never wanted anybody else to be in trouble for shit that I was doing. So um, the the feds were just very interested in getting a lot of bank robbery convictions. And that's what I supplied to them. And they seemed very happy with that. So literally no one knew that you were doing this. You never told anyone. No. Okay. Not you didn't have well. the big country moment where you told some ex-meth heads. Big country did that before he even did a crime. I know. <laughs> He's just built differently. Well, the 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 funny part is like kind of you're known for telling telling things before they happen, right? Like, right that you can't keep a secret, isn't that? One yeah, of yeah. I've, things I've, you're I've known some for. Sort of, 
unfair. You should just point to this reputation of not being able to keep a secret. Yeah, so you should just point to this. Yeah, exactly. And just drop You're the right. mic and walk away. Yeah. <laughs> what? How? How big a Were secret you a- have you ever kept? Other people <laughs> accusing. Boom! You? Done. Yeah. <laughs> Um, were you ever on a wanted poster? And if so, did you ever get a copy of it? I'm sure I was on some wanted posters. I, I don't think I ever went into any post offices, which is where they do that stuff. I was in a lot of Crime Stoppers ads in newspapers, but just not in towns that I was living in because most of the uh, bank robberies I did were in other towns, you know. Um, so I appeared in those. And then, of course, I talked about the appearing on TV in San Diego on the real estate slash bad person channel. I really wish we could get a copy of, of one of the crime stopper ads. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I almost could, could roll it back in my head. The exact, you know, which houses they were advertising, which other criminals they were talking about. (laughs) And then me, you know, a picture of, of me from my backyard, probably taken by my wife when I was, you know, making a <laughs> snowman with my kid. Yeah, I mean, it. We'd probably have to go to like the library of the city that put it in their newspaper and go to like microfiche, right? Yeah, to see the to Unless get the was... Crime Stoppers ads. Yeah, I think that mm-hmm. that could probably happen. Yeah, yeah. that's too much work. Um, <laughs> uh. So someone said that they remember you being identified as the baseball cap bandit, but everything I looked up, that is someone that robbed after you. Do you remember being called this? No. Um, I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but it seems like a, one of the least specific bank robber nicknames that you could possibly come (laughs) up with. Yeah. Well, if you, if you. If you Google baseball cap bandit in like Seattle or even, um, there's someone, but it was already when you were serving your time. Uh huh. And he was probably the, somewhere in the 3000th range of people who dropped a bank with a baseball cap on. (laughs) Right. Right. It is. They just try to, remember you said that there were a couple that they are trying to tie you together with, right? Calling you the green river killer. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I became the international man of mystery. Then, yeah, they they were desperate. I mean, everyone wanted to make me their their. I'm sure that happens a lot. Yeah, you're right. Especially someone just disappears in these kind of circumstances, leaves a cryptic note. Um, they find out he's doing really bad things, and they go, "Well, he must do all the bad things." Right. right. Like I'm an arsonist. Like <laughs> no. Right. I don't Even like if, fire. like you said, you would have been, you would have been like five or ten years old or something when the first Green River uh, Yeah, um, so I became a teenager when that stuff <laughs> yeah. was going on. And I guess, you know, before I had a car, I was like riding my, my bike down to... <laughs> All the way to Enumclaw or wherever it was. Yeah, yeah. Not to make light of the Green River killings. Awful thing. No. Sorry for laughing. Um. Okay, so now let's get into prison life. Mm-hmm. This overwhelmingly had the most questions, for sure. Um, I'm sure that, well, even at the beginning, you said a lot of people have questions about this. Um, Could you get pills in prison? I never pursued it. I never heard that anybody had a lot of uh, pills or prescription drugs in prison. The main things, uh, the main drugs that you could get at that time 
were heroin and weed, and they both came in through the visiting room and the the general way that they came in was um kissing with spouses or significant others and swallowing bags and then you gotta wait balloons or whatever. And then you gotta wait <sighs> until like Vern has a bowel movement and then everyone can get high, you know. Oh man. So I never pursued that stuff. I think no. <laughs> I think I had Pruno twice. Once it was okay, the other time no. Oh, can uh, you explain that? Pruno is uh prison wine, like um or prison alcohol made from fruit, uh usually some bread to get the yeast going and sugar and you keep it in a warm spot. Like you try to put it in the heat vent during the winter time. And the problem with that is Pruno will start to stink when it's getting good, like when it's getting ready to drink. Oh, okay. And so that's how the, the unit counselor and the unit manager always find it. They're like, they're, they like, they're walking around the unit, they go in the TV room and it smells like alcohol. And then they look in the heat vent and there it is. So Bruno didn't come to fruition very often. Uh, once in county and jail. How I does it taste? It tastes awful. Um, and which, does it actually get you drunk? Well, that's the thing. The the stuff in county jail, it didn't. The stuff at uh, Sheridan did. It's just, it's all hit or miss. And he probably, you know, after I tried it that second time, because I was like, I trusted the guy that did it the second time. I was like, oh, this might be all right. Mm-hmm. I tried it. It was pretty good. And, um, but sometimes a real good batch would get made. And like one night, I remember the Mexican TV room was just hopping and they were hooting and hollering. And there, um, there was one inmate, um, I think he slash she, I don't know about all this pronoun business, but, um, it was someone who was like halfway through a sex change and, and they Mm -hmm. had boobs and they were really outgoing and they had gotten drunk on Pruno and everybody in the Mexican TV room was drunk on Pruno and this inmate was dancing on the table in front of everyone and the place was going fucking nuts. The guards were called. Um, they found a bunch of drunk inmates, but no evidence, you know, cause it was kind of like when the cops are called to a party, every, you know, every trash can is filled with alcohol, but nobody actually possesses any. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> so they had a good batch that one night, but I, I think I had one, one cup of it in a federal prison that was, Pretty good. A toilet tanqueray is what I like to call it, uh, because sometimes <laughs> sometimes they can brew it up in there. It's better done with a heat source, okay. though. But you never made any. No, I never made any, and um, I had weed a couple times in prison, which is pretty risky because it stays in your system for so long. But I think, like, right, and you were drug tested regularly, right? I was drug tested pretty regularly, but if it was like right after a drug test and someone offered, I was like. Eh, you know, give it a shot. And so, but uh but pills, heroin, no. My roommate went to the hole for heroin. We've talked about that. But I could tell. I mean, um, I could tell when he was high cuz you know, when you're on heroin, your your pupils are just pinpricks. Right. Right. Um was there anything you really wanted but couldn't get in prison? Women. I guess besides everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, sex sex is a you know, I had a great time in prison but not having sex for quite um 
that probably changes from time to time, you know, depending on who's the low, yeah, the low bidder or whatever. Ew. Um, what else? Taco time. Um, mm-hmm. Whoever wins my the contract. Uh, cooking. Yeah. Um, I. I tended to look at the thing more at the things that I wanted, you know, like there sometimes they would serve hot dogs. I like that. Sometimes they, you know, once a once every two week, you, two weeks you could get a chicken breast if you took the handicap if you wheeled the handicap guys up to the chow hall cuz they would always run out of breasts pretty pretty fast, but if uh you hook up with one of the guys in the wheelchairs, then you get to go first. And, uh, and get yourself a chicken breast. So little things like that. You start looking forward to things rather than missing things is what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. Um. So then this is kind of an opposite question. Was there anything you lost a taste for while in prison because you just had it too much? Um. I kind of, because of the low quality of the red meat that was in prison, whether it was hamburgers or stew or, you mm-hmm. know, even the steaks that they tried to serve sometimes, um, I'm, I've not been much of a red meat eater since then. I think I, um, mentioned on last week's recap that once a year, Emily and I go to Ruth's Chris and I love a fucking fantastic steak. But other than that, I think that mm-hmm. experience has kind of ruined me for that. I used to trade my, my burger sense. patties for, uh, the other person's cheese and accoutrement. You know what I mean? Make a grilled yeah, cheese. And I would just, yeah, yeah. We're just like have a double cheese sandwich, and you can have that burger patty. No thanks. I mean, it's just the the quality is so bad that it really turns you off, and you can't really screw up chicken. You know, uh, so the chicken in there was pretty good. Yeah. So there are so many different grades of red meat, and and other types of meat is usually pretty much the same no matter where you get it, whether it's prison or in a restaurant. But red meat. Yeah, that shit falls off fast when you start getting into a low bitter situation. <laughs> true. That's true. I think that's probably why I don't um eat meat now is because uh we were forced to eat a lot yeah. of cube steak. Yeah, shitty red meat will turn you off red uh, meat. As kids and so <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Just the texture of I can't yeah, do like it. every year when I have that filet mignon, I, I I'm like, this is what it can be. <laughs> you know. Red meat can be goddamn delicious, but only at Ruth's Chris, I guess. Right. And then just savor it for another year. (laughs) Um, Did you have to sleep with the lights on? Um, Yes and no. I mean, when when I first got there, I had that um, terrible uh, seg cart job that I would have to get up for in the middle of the night and then like get two different naps during the day. So um, obviously I was sleeping during the daylight then. But they do um, slam the lights down at 10 o'clock, I think, on weeknights and I think 12 o'clock on weekends. Something like that. But they... Uh, and then what time like does the lights come on? When they need people to get up and go to work at the furniture Ugh. factory, they, they, they put them on at 6. I guess you just get used to it. You're able to sleep when you can. Yeah, that that kind of stuff has never bothered me too much. The light situation didn't bother me very much. I mean, the noise is pretty awful, but Jeff working in construction and maintenance services always kept us supplied with foam earplugs 
which I I still oh, use nice. now because I I live in a in a builder home with all wood floors. So uh, when the first person's up, everyone's going to be up unless you find a way to deal with the noise, the pets and whoever's up taking care of them. All those insects. Yeah, the insects chirping in your home. <laughs> you can hear. Um, did you have a window looking outside in yourself? We did. Um, Jeff and I had a window that uh, looked out on the edge of the compound. Um, and right outside our window was the Indian Sweat Lodge which is um, something that the Native Americans, um, I think in most of the prisons in the Northwest, there's a sweat lodge where they go and they it's like a sauna and they get mm-hmm. naked. And if you look out the window at the wrong time, you just you see some Native American dong. Um, so <laughs> I wasn't big on looking. Because look, it's a religious. Yeah. Yeah, they they get they get to have that. Yeah, they get some sort of exception, you know, that they get to have that, and it's great, except okay. for if you happen to look out during one of the times where they're allowed to go right. out there, they're they they're pretty free with their nakedness. <laughs> um, did you have your did you did you have a number you like your prison number prisoner number on your prison clothes? Not on my clothes. We had to keep. Uh, a card on us at all times. I I was looking through, Bobby looked up, uh, there is a handbook now that they have, what I talked about, like not mm-hmm. having a handbook, and there is a handbook now. Yeah. And what mm-hmm. the prisoners are required to now is to have, I think the ID card clipped to their clothes at all times. And I can't remember if okay. we had to have it clipped to our clothes or around our necks, or we just had, I, I think we just had to have the ID with us at all times. So you had to have it at least in your pocket so you could, uh, like prove who you were. And my ID number was 23848-086. And 23848 meant that I was the 23rd, 848th person in the federal system from the from the 086, which is Western Washington. So that's what the numbers meant. And oh, never, is that a number you'll never forget? Never, ever forget that. Because it, everybody was always <laughs> asking you for it. What's your number? 23848-086. Uh. And so you knew got like the the Gones, like big country, he's an 065, you know? So if you saw someone's okay. name on the call-out sheet for the next day, with the call-out sheet would would tell you if you had a an appointment, you know, a doctor appointment or something you needed to go to. And you'd see someone's name on the call-out sheet, and then you'd see their number, and then you'd see the suffix, and you'd know, uh, I think, um, I think... Nevada was 048 and Oregon was 065. And, you know, so you could tell where someone actually came from, no matter where they said they came from, you could tell where they actually were convicted. Interesting. Um, could you have posters on your walls or did Shawshank Redemption <laughs> ruin that? I don't think we could have posters on our walls. I, I think we could have like picture frames on top of our lockers with, you know, um, safe for work pictures in them, you know. Okay. Um did you have to pretend to be racist to get a chair in the big boy room? That's interesting because it's a gray area. I never You weren't not not a racist. <laughs> well, here's the thing when when I got to Sheridan, I did spend a lot of time because it was happening. I got there during the NBA playoffs. Uh I think it was like 
April, May, June of 94. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of the NBA. You know this. And the Sonics were in the NBA mm, that year. Yeah. That was the year we actually lost to Denver in that horrible, horrible way. And so mm-hmm. when I first got in the unit, I would there were steps outside of the the big boy TV room, the white TV room, I mean. Uh, and there were steps outside the black TV room. And I would sit on the steps outside the black TV room and watch the games. Um, and during the day, I was going out to the yard and I was playing pickup basketball and getting to know a few of the guys. And a couple of them were in our unit and, and they would sit in that room all night and watch those playoffs. And one day, um, can't remember this cat's name, but uh, he just he opened the door and he stuck his head out and said, come in. And I, I came in and I sat in the chair nearest to the door and watched the NBA playoffs. And um, I don't know if the, if the white supremacists noticed this or they noticed that I was playing a lot of ball with black people in the yard. Uh, and then I, I eventually ended up the first the first uh, softball team I played on was a, a black team called the the Blue Notes. And I got spotted there and traded and moved up to the A-League because it was a B-League team. Um, it took me a while, I guess, to get into that TV room, maybe because there were some doubts about my credibility as a white person. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I was yep. too willing to mix it up with the blacks, but come on, I love playing basketball. I love watching basketball. I'm not going to not do those things. So I sat on those steps for a while and eventually I started going in during the day. And, uh, cause like at 11 o'clock I'd watch young and the restless in the black TV room. And at noon I'd watch all my children in the white TV room. And there'd be like four or five of us. So it didn't matter. You know, I didn't need to get anyone's permission to sit in there. And I was doing it to curry favor with Richard Lockin so I could get his clerk job when he left. So I got to be kind of, you know, a fixture in and around that TV room. And then eventually somebody got out or went to the hole permanently or something. And they, they said, hey, there's a spot here. You know, do you want in? And I said, sure. And I got my chair made and all that. And... There was a lot of racism being spouted. Uh, We call it the big boy TV room. Jeff and I, our cell, our big cell was actually right next to it. And that's a mocking name because neither Jeff or I are white supremacists or uh, don't Mm -hmm. see ourselves as as racists. And we, we were just making fun of these guys, you know. Oh, mm-hmm, you know, they, right. they put on their big boy pants, they go in there and they talk, they, they talk <laughs> racism, but they never do it on the tier. Right. You know, cause they don't want to get their ass right, kicked right. or whatever. So, oh, it's so we call it the big boy TV room, but we both wanted to be in there cause it was right next to our cell and they watched a lot of movies and cool shit and boxing and all this cool <laughs> shit. So right. we, we ended up getting in there and it was a matter of keeping your mouth shut and, you know, just never really going to bat for any other race. Mm-hmm. You definitely didn't wear your safety pins in there. No, 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 not at all. It was just, it was just, you know, it sucked. And I do 
feel a little bit bad about it, but um, there were some really bad dudes in there that would have really hurt me had I expressed my real yeah. opinions. Oh, for sure. It's You survive. That's what you did. And eventually, uh, um, Jeff and I got them watching Seinfeld, and they loved it. <laughs> And it was so great every week. Did they know that those were Jews? <laughs> well, they let Joe Blumberg into the big boy TV room, but 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 they did make fun of his Jewishness pretty much nonstop. Um, oh, so we got we got that going. Um, we got we got it going with uh, some reruns that would happen like right after dinner, and then mm-hmm. after people got hooked on the reruns, then everyone was into watching the first run shows on thursday night the place was packed out right. on thursday night oh that's awesome yeah um so i guess the the another question was how segregated racially are the inmates and that kind of answered that question but later on with sports you also got in with the uh latino group right they were buying and selling you for for their, their teams <laughs> or am i well um the the guy who was the boss uh of the best franchise on the yard um was chemo uh and he was a guy from hawaii who was in for murder but it wasn't he wasn't in hawaiian prison because it happened in international waters which means that you go to federal prison and he was a bad dude um but always great to me and I knew him way before he figured out that I could play ball. And then once he figured that out, he used to um, make sure that I always played for his teams, whether it was the, the unit team representing in the tournament or whatever. He would, you know, make sure that I was on that. And then he had like a network of teams on the compound, both A and B League, and he would pay the A League players so he could get the best guys and it was made it boring it's like yukon women's basketball you know where it's just the five best women are on that team every year so it's boring as hell because they beat everyone by 50 and it was kind of like that with the teams that chemo put together but i wasn't not going to play on the best team and not going to collect (laughs) some money so um, so who did who did chemo hang out with because hawaiian kind of doesn't fit into the boxes that are Set normally for prison. There were a lot of Islanders at that prison. Be, it, oh, okay. It was probably the go-to uh, federal prison for Islanders because um, not only because it was on the West Coast, but because of the big Islander community in Seattle and Portland. And uh, the thing right. about uh, a lot of the Islanders that commit crimes, a lot of them are on smaller islands or, or U.S. protectorates or whatever in and they don't have prisons. right. They don't have a prison for someone of their that level of offense. You know, they have little prisons for mm-hmm. you know uh, an islander Otis to sleep off in the drunk tank, but they don't. Ha- you know, some right. guy like has five million dollars in drugs or kills someone, and it's like ah, we probably should. This guy should be in a non bamboo facility. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, were you able to walk around inside the prison at will or, um, were your cells locked at night? Cells, the cells were, um, locked at night. Uh, I think, as I said, 10 on weekdays and midnight on weekends. Um, you could walk freely within your unit during that time. In fact, you could even be in other, 
other inmate cells, which I don't think you can do anymore, according to the handbook that Bobby provided me. But uh, as far as moving about on the compound, uh, all day long there are hourly moves, 10-minute moves. They're called 10-minute rec moves. They would they would announce tension on the compound, 10-minute rec move, and then they'd announce that it was coming to an end, and then so you had like, you know, to get to where you were going, and then you were stuck there for the next hour. Um, the only way you could move freely between times is whether if you had some sort of orderly job where you're cleaning up the compound, you know, landscaping job, or you had some sort of mm-hmm. pass or dispensation, and they, they would just radio and say, uh, inmate, inmate coming to the barber shop or inmate going to the laundry or something, and they would say your name, and then everyone would look for you out there on the compound. Um, This is one that didn't get included, and I don't remember if you talked about this on your other podcast, the Takedown Podcast, or TBTL before, um, but about contraband food that you would steal and how you would do that. Mm-hmm. Do you um, remember that story? Well, there's a huge amount of food that gets back to the units uh, from the kitchen. That's a huge business, like uh, getting produce and meat and you know everything back to the unit so we can cook that stuff as far as like outside food uh like from fast food or whatever no that shit never happened i'm sure that happens at the camp where there are no walls and you know visitors can i'm just... talking about the cereal oh you're talking about okay do you remember what you used to do with oh cereal? yeah 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 yeah. just small time stuff like uh, we would one of the things i actually miss about prison is watching football with the fellas and we would, you know, we would all have our spots in the sports TV room that Jeff and I kind of created. Everyone got their spots down there. It was different than the big boy room. It was all mixed race. Everyone's watching the football on Sunday. And so we'd go down there, we'd get our spots, and then they would open for brunch, which was the, you know, on weekends, instead of lunch, they would have brunch, which meant like toast and eggs and stuff like that. And chorizo, I discovered chorizo in jail. All None of the other white guys like to eat it, but <laughs> God damn, that is good stuff. <clears throat> so you go up to brunch and one of the things that uh, we would enjoy, like big country, I don't think we got a chance to talk about this, but Big Country, when he worked in the kitchen, every Sunday he would uh, somehow smuggle back a bunch of cinnamon rolls. And so he would treat everyone in the morning to cinnamon rolls before brunch. So we're watching football pregame. We eat our cinnamon rolls and then we'd go up to brunch. And one of the things that I would grab and steal and bring back for snacks throughout the day were the little, um, you know how you get the little boxes of cereal like it? Mm-hmm. You go to the continental yeah. breakfast, you know, I, little things of Apple Jacks. And it's like or, a shot of, yeah, it's like a shot of Apple Jacks. Yeah, exactly. And so I would. It's like a handful. <laughs> I would oh, I would sit at my table. I would take a bunch of these boxes and so would my table mates and we would empty all of them out of the little bags. And then I had mm-hmm. a nice pair of oversized sweatpants, which I would cinch up real good and then drop all of the bags of cereal down into my pants. And then you you have to get through the metal shack when you're going up away from the units and when you're going back down to the units. And the 
they usually don't pat you down unless you set off the metal detector. So all I've got is all these bags of cereal in my sweats, you know, because I want us to have nice <laughs> sweet snacks all day. Yeah. So I've got all these. Uh, I'm not going to set off the metal detector, but what can trip me up is the sound. Because if you've ever walked oh, yeah, in that's some, gotta be noisy. some sweats with like 30 or 40 bags of cereal in them, it makes a lot of noise. So we would have these loud conversations, Jeff and I and this guy Bullhead, Big Country, Randy Miller, these guys. We would just, as soon as we got in the metal shack, we would start having a loud conversation about the football games we were about to watch, you know, just talking a bunch of shit about our fantasy football league or whatever, just so mm. the the guard in there wouldn't hear me going, whoosh, 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 <laughs> like the worst corduroys you ever had. Yeah. <laughs> and then once we got back down to the unit, um, uh, the the guards would, I mean, the the guard at our door would hear me go through the door and he would start laughing. He thought that was pretty hilarious. How, oh, really? Yeah, they didn't give a shit. If we were, if, <laughs> if no one was going to get hurt over what was going on, most of the guards right. didn't give a shit. But the metal shack guys took it pretty seriously, so we had to get it by them. So, if you had been caught at the metal shack, what would you have? <laughs> what would you? What would have happened? Um, I'm sure it would have been a great story for them to tell for a long, long time. <laughs> and then, but you I, wouldn't have got punished. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I almost went to the hole a couple times. The the uh, the first time being when I didn't um, I didn't know what stand up count was, and I was in the TV room, which I talked about. Mm-hmm. And the second time, I don't know if I talked about this one, but uh, one night I had busted my thumb playing hockey, and. I didn't really know that I'd busted it that bad until I got back to the unit and it was pretty late at night and my thumb was really swelling up. And then there was a huge fight or something, or I don't know if it was a huge fight, but somebody got beat up pretty bad. So what happens then is they lock everything down and we got locked down and then they go from cell to cell doing a knuckle check to see if anybody, uh. anybody's knuckles are all fucked up. And my thumb was fucked up. So they checked my knuckles and then they took me to the lieutenant's office and they're sitting me there and they're, you know, like, do you know this guy? Did you hurt this guy? Blah, blah, blah. I didn't know the guy. Um, and I was super fortunate because they, I, I said, I hurt, I hurt this playing hockey. I got, cause, and the only reason it was memorable when it happened for anybody out there is because the guy who was, um, who was trying to get the puck from me actually broke his stick on my hand. And that's how my thumb got broke. So he had to get a new stick. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, looking at my thumb like, God damn. But it, you know, sometimes those things, they hurt, but they don't swell up until later. So I got back to the, back to the unit and I showered. And of course now it looks like fucking Fred Flintstone's thumb, you know, when it Mm -hmm. pulses (laughs) with every heartbeat or whatever. And I'm like, ah, I got to go to the doctor tomorrow, try to go to the doctor tomorrow, but there's nothing I can do. It's like 1030 or whatever. So uh, luckily the guy that worked out at rec, I love this guy. His name was Wetzel. He answered his phone at now like 1130 midnight and he backed up my story. So I didn't have to Oh, nice. go to the hole. Did you give him a bag of cereal <laughs> next time you saw him? <laughs> Straight from your pants, the warm, the warmer. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that uh, that uh, I 
if I had beaten up that guy, I would have expected to go to the hole. The serial thing, probably, I probably think I would have gotten like some extra work or something, you know. And probably someone else would have had to borrow your sweatpants the next week. Yeah, you know, so, they would have been. Yeah, on exactly, to you. exactly. I mean, uh, someone, yeah. someone uh, skinnier than me, hopefully, so they can get even more cereal in there. Get more. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of cereal was offered? Uh, we had the we had your Fruit Loops, your Frosted Flakes, your Apple Jacks, and then of course all the healthy ones nobody wanted unless they put no sugar on them. But yeah, for yeah. for um, yeah. football snacks, everyone just wanted a little little bag of some sweet cereal. So do you ever crave that now, like just some dry sugar <laughs> cereal? No, not really. It was it was no. of its time. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so this we got a lot of these this line of questioning. So I'll just go in right, go in raw right now. Um, is prison rape a real thing in the federal prison system? I don't know. As you know it, I guess you only know your circumstance. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but you didn't know of any. No, I didn't witness any. Hear about any. There was a lot of sex going on, but most of it was mm. consensual. In its way, I think there okay. were some people that were consenting because uh, it was the They're path scared. of least resistance. You know, uh, if they mm. gave up some sex, then nothing bad was going to happen to them. I mean, I, the, we we spoke about chemo. Chemo had uh, a girl. Uh, his name was Jerry, and he was a sweet guy and just a meek skinny guy and um he was chemo's roommate uh cellmate mm -hmm. and that was an arrangement that worked for both of them jerry seemed happy to get through prison um because nobody was ever going to fuck with jerry because <laughs> because right. of chemo because <laughs> he, he was a dangerous dude and he had a lot of a lot of friends influence and money and he was a guy who also used to brag about um Kids, hold your ears. He used to brag about how wide his dick was, uh, but he also chemo or that Jerry chemo. He he he, okay. he would he would say, uh, and it's it's what you would call a chode if you want to look on Urban Dictionary. Mm -hmm. uh, he would yeah. say it's short, but it it's short, but it's thick, like a tuna can, brah. He would yell this no. like on the yard. Yeah, about he would be bragging oh, about how Jerry. short and thick his dick was, and uh, I guess Jerry got to enjoy that. I wonder if when they got out, they like continued that relationship. Ah, oh, boy, is chemo that, still in? Do you yeah, think? chemo's never getting out. Yeah, that's the thing. That's why that yeah. that's what makes um, some guys more dangerous than others. Uh, if they are not getting out and they have no hope of getting out, then mm -hmm. there's no. I mean, you can take away some of the privileges, but there's no um, there's no carrot for them. Yeah. Um, so, did any men ever make a pass at you? Let me say one more thing about chemo before that. My first experience okay. with chemo, I used to <laughs> when I first got out on the compound, I used to go to the library every day just so I could like read all the magazines, newspapers, get some good books because county jail was really lacking and all that. So. Chemo would go to the library every afternoon as well before you could get out on the compound and, you know, play some sports. 
And I, I remember sitting in a room with chemo and some other guys, there's like a reading room or whatever. It's a glass all around, you know, and, and I didn't know he was who he was. I just thought he was just this huge, funny dude. Right. And mm-hmm. I had some like weird facial hair going on at the time. Um, you know, like, like a goatee, but with like a little extra stank on it or something. <laughs> and chemo said, uh, one day as he was getting up to leave and he, he said, he said, you got to lose that shit, bro. You got to lose that shit. And he was pointing at, you know, he was like his chin or whatever and pointing at my face or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I probably will, you know? And <laughs> so he left and then this other dude that was sitting there says, uh, you got to shave it. <laughs> I said, what? I said, yeah, he's not kidding. You you got to get rid of that. Get rid of it quickly. I'm like, why does he get to say? And the dude is like, like that was not a suggestion. <laughs> yeah. He just didn't want to look at my stupid facial hair. One more day. <laughs> so, so I listened and I shaved that shit. And then the next day he says, looking good, bro. <laughs> so was that him making a pass at you? No, he wasn't. As far he just as, didn't uh, want to see make... your stupid face. Yeah, he didn't like want to said. see that. He wasn't interested <laughs> in me sexually. You know, he just, um, yeah. Nobody ever made a pass at me. Uh, I never saw anybody make a sincere pass at anyone. But I, but if if someone was weak and small and probably not very smart, uh, I think a lot of times they would get pressured into doing stuff they didn't want to do. And I was not weak or small or dumb. Right. Um, how can you have any private jack time? Uh, you don't for a while. I mean, when when you're at county jail, you just have to wait for your roommate to fall asleep or, or mm-hmm. you have to wait for a time during the day when they decide to stay out in the day room and you're in, you're in your room. Um, when you get to prison and you're on the flats, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, I, first time I did it, I saw some, some anime porn in the trash and I pulled it out. (laughs) And then that night I waited for my bunkmate. I could hear him, you know, snoring and then Mm. quickly hit it. But then you think, ah, I got nothing to clean this up with. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I didn't think it through. So it was no. ugly scene. So I didn't do that much on the flats. But when you get in a cell, what's interesting is there is an industry in the in the prison. We had uh, big wooden doors. I think they've been replaced since it's metal. But we had big wooden doors that had vertical windows like from the doorknob up about probably four inches wide and then, you know, four feet, four foot tall from the doorknob to near the top of the door. And that's how the guards could look in, shine their lights in, make sure they saw skin during count. Um, there was an industry to circumvent that. Uh, and that involved um, making a um, two little slats on the bottom half of that window, like two, like a, a two foot high sliding door that you could pull across. So even if someone was walking outside and tried to look in your window to see you on the toilet, which is right next to the window, 
they would have to get way up on their tiptoes and they still couldn't see what you're doing. So many cells were equipped with this system to where when you had to take a shit or you had to jack off, you could pull this little door and then no matter whether it was a guard or just some asshole, and there were plenty of assholes who would, but they would see one of these things up and they would just bam, 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 bam on the cell and say shit like, don't hurt yourself. You know, (laughs) some, you know, some bullshit to get you out of your, get you out of your, (laughs) your jack rhythm or whatever. And, or your shit rhythm, which is even worse. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, right. If it goes back in, then <laughs> you might life-threatening. Not... <laughs> yeah. So uh, th- those were a thing. We had one of those on our cell. And, you know, you just put that up and you'd go about your business. And everybody knew. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we respect each other, you know, except for this dude, Randy Miller, used to pound on the door every time. And if I hadn't either been shitting or had my dick in my hand, I would just have torn out the door and tried to <laughs> brain him on the stairs. Um, What kind of music did you have access to in prison? And are there songs that you hear now that remind you of specific moments? There there was, a, I think, a music, uh, music collection at the library. You could go and you could listen there, which I did when I first got there. Then once I got hold of a radio, because you could get a radio and some headphones on the commissary, I would uh, mostly listen to sports. But the music station, there was a uh, an alternative station out of Portland at the time. First, I would listen to morning radio shows that I could get either um, – not uh, – was it Kevin and Bean? I can't remember. So uh, there was a radio show from Southern California I would listen to. Uh, I would get some Stern if I could. There were a couple others. But uh, as far as music goes, I would listen to that alternative station. And I remember back then um, a lot of Everclear. And I liked Everclear. They were Portland band, so they got played like all the time. A lot. <laughs> yeah, on there. So I liked that. Um so yeah, whenever I hear that, uh, there was there. There's a few songs that that uh, I remember. I'm pretty strongly associate uh, Beastie Boys' "Intergalactic" with uh, my time at FDC SeaTac because every night at ten they would do some sort of ten at ten, which was like the ten most relevant songs you know they felt were out at the time, and that was the time when "Intergalactic" came out and. Uh, me and a friend there, we used to listen to it kind of together as much as you can when you're both wearing earphones, but, um, we were really into that and that was, that was about as good a time as you could have at FDCC tech. So when you got to SeaTac, you could listen to local radio. Yeah. We were listening to Seattle radio. It wasn't bad at Sheridan because we were out in the middle of nowhere. So you could pick up radio stations from all over the place. I could even pick up sometimes, XTRA in in uh, LA and San Diego, you know, their their tower was in Mexico. I could pick up that old station. We picked up gambling shows out of Las Vegas. Uh we picked up Golden State Warrior games out of uh San Francisco and we would just pop them up uh on the big screen, which meant we, you know, would listen through this giant cone that we'd hooked up a uh one of our headphones to, which meant that we could listen to the radio together out loud. Because when when you got when you're in a uh, concrete cell and you you've got that sort of echo chamber, it volume can be produced pretty quickly. 
So when you when you got transferred to SeaTac, did you get to take your radio with you? Yeah, you could take your um, any personal property you bought within the system. You could take with. And does your commissary money transfer over too? Yeah, it just takes an insane amount of time. <laughs> you know, your prison time and hearing from you in Big Country actually reminds me more of like soldiers being stationed in the Middle East rather than what you see on like scary prison shows like Oz or Prison Break or something like that. That's just yeah, my it, observation. <laughs> it's just, it's a grind. It's it's boring if you let it be boring. But, you know, you, you always see, um, you know, you see people stationed overseas, men and women stationed overseas, and it can be boring as hell, but you know they're inventing ways to make it fun. Or make it, you know, passable because that's just human nature. You don't, you just don't want to sit there and go, well, uh, I guess I have to be here for another five years. Or if you're a soldier, like, I guess I have to be here till someone shoots my head off, you know, just, (laughs) you want to have a good time no matter where you are and you'll, you'll try to figure out a way. Make the time pass faster. Yeah. Um, if, if you made money on your side hustle, did you get to take it with you once you got out? Uh, yeah, you could take, you could do that, but I didn't get paid money for my hustles. I got paid in commissary or stamps or, you know, whatever it was. Um, cause generally how it worked is if you did a, like a big job for somebody, like you did all their paperwork for their appeal and they owed you 85 bucks or 125 bucks, then what would happen is whatever night that his unit went to commissary, you would just give them a list of everything you wanted that added uh. up to that price. And then you'd go up to the commissary and he'd hand you that bag and then you go back to your unit. So it was not something where you're, you know, stacking cheddar by cheddar. I mean, so right before cash. you, yeah, um, and also actual cheese sometimes. Yeah, um, sometimes. So, <laughs> so before you got switched out of SeaTac you just had to make sure you cashed all that in or could you trade it like, okay, big country, you have more time or whatever. Well, what you do is you take care of your friends when you're on your way out. Mm. Um, you know, you, you, you give out your shoes, your radio, you know, whatever, whatever commissary credit you have left, you, you bequeath it to your friends. And so it's good to make friends and have friends in prison because your life gets, you know, a lot sweeter. Like if somebody (laughs) leaves and they have like a non-standard piece of clothing, you know, like some really cool shorts or sweats or something that you've always had your eye on or something. It's like, Hey, you know, it's, you're getting out pretty soon. You know, I really like those umbros, you know, (laughs) really those look like they'd fit me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Make friends with people your same size. (laughs) Right. Right. All right. Um, what was the first thing you did when you got out? They don't give you a lot of time. So I first thing I did was report to Because you had to check house. into a... Yeah, you had to go to a halfway house, right? Yeah. And so it's not an exciting story. Um, the first time I had any time at all away from the halfway house... like I, Actually, the first time I had a pass for any length of time at all, I went and got an ID card. I couldn't get my driver's license because I didn't have a car to drive, but I got a Washington Mm -hmm. State ID card. And then after that, the next time I got out, I went to taco time and then I went to a movie. 
Um, um, what did you get at Taco Time and what was the movie? Uh, I got a Casita burrito and I can't think of the title of the movie. Um, God damn it. But it was about Hope Davis was the star and, and the movie was she was like dating, like not like online dating because that didn't exist yet, but she was like mm-hmm. doing a ton of blind dating. And it was so funny. I went and watched it a second time the next time I got a pass. Really? I'll figure out that movie. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty great. Set in Boston. Hey, Bobby. Um, you stated that you repaired your relationships while you were in prison. How did you do that? Initially, it was me writing to people and asking mm-hmm. if I could call them, you know, put them on my list and call oh, okay. them. Um, the hardest ones to repair were the ones with my father, which took a long time uh, because he was hurt and my stepmom, who didn't know me very well, uh, of course, was totally on his side. And, you know, I had to put a lot of good behavior together before getting back on her good side, which meant on, you know, being on his good side. And the other hardest one was my ex-wife, but I worked really hard on that. And mm-hmm. because I thought it was important for Meredith to know me and know who I am, and that's my stepdaughter. So... I started a letter writing campaign immediately, you know, apologizing and, and trying to explain and, you know, asking for forgiveness or whatever. And I let her get her shit out because there was a lot of shit to get out and she deserved to get it out. And eventually she agreed to let me talk to her on the phone and I talked to her on the phone and then more time passed and she allowed me to talk to Meredith on the phone. It ended up being a really good thing. And they they both ended up forgiving me and we, we've been friendly ever since. And I've, you know, she's been there for me for advice over the years and I've been there for her for her advice and her troubles uh, over the year. And Meredith too. Meredith has had some troubles and she's doing great now but um i thought it was important that because her real father never showed up at all and then mm-hmm. the stepdad just up and disappeared after some you know years that were probably pretty good for her developmentally um i just thought she should at least know who i am and that i am you know i'm stepping up and just saying you know i'm not your dad i'm here for you Mm-hmm. And it wasn't your fault that all the men disappoint you. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, has your wife, your ex-wife, listened to the episodes of TVTL? And would you she want has. her to? She did. She and has. Okay. Yeah, she enjoyed it. And the movie was called Next Stop Wonderland. By the way, nineteen okay. ninety-eight. Hope Davis. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. It's you would good. watch it again. I would. If it came on right now, I would turn away from this national championship game, which I'm watching with the sound off, (laughs) and and I would watch Next Stop Wonderland. Eat some some sweatpants cereal. (laughs) Yeah, just like old times. (laughs) Uh, So she listened to it, and Mm -hmm. and she liked it. Yeah, she did. I sent her the links and said, you don't have to listen to this, but uh, because I asked her permission before I 
Um, oh, that's really nice of you. I did the interviews, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, way it's back in the day when, when my friend Dave was doing a screenplay about it, she was like not into that, you know, it was like too soon yeah. or whatever. So I was yeah. like, well, what do you think now? Can we talk about it now? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> you can talk about it. Would you send her these episodes or do you think she's already heard it enough? Um, I'll send her the link, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I think she'd enjoy it. We, we, we had a good marriage in a lot of ways. I liked being married Mm -hmm. and I loved her and, you know, it was just, it was a bad time to be married to me. Um, so let's see, when did you, when did your self-esteem recover and when did you stop thinking of yourself as an ex-con versus someone who has paid their debt to society after turning themselves in. Um, I think I stopped seeing myself as an ex-con when I got called into my probation officers. Um, he he called me in. It was six months before I was scheduled to be off of supervised release. So it was like in December of like nineteen or December of 2000, I think. And I was scheduled to be off in June of 2001. He, he called me in. I was like, Oh God, what the fuck happened? Did I, did I <laughs> pee a dirty doing? somehow? Or, I mean, what is going on? I, cause you think the worst when they call you in, you're like, Oh fuck, you know, get your affairs in order. So he called me in and he said, um, you've been doing really well. And I was like, you know, waiting for him to say, but <laughs> doing really well. And I don't think uh, we need to keep after this anymore. And I didn't know this was a thing that could happen. Nobody told me they could yeah. let you go. And what, do you, what did, and what does he mean by keep after this? Keep, like, <laughs> like keep, I had to file reports every month and pay all this yeah. money and, and pee. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's a big, it's a big taxpayer expense. Really? Yeah. You know, following dudes around, especially if mm-hmm. dudes like not going to do anything, you know. So I think they give them mm-hmm. some discretion to say, you know, why do we? This keep, guy's not going to. Yeah. Why do we keep fucking going after this guy trying to trip him up or whatever when he's just out there doing his shit? You know, he's trying to do his shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it's a being on probation is a fucking hassle. I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. terrible. Like one time uh, I had to go on a uh, trip for work. I had to go to a convention in Las Vegas and I had to spend the first entire day of that trip. I missed every meeting because I had to go downtown to uh, Las Vegas police department and get like registered as a convicted felon. And that's not an easy thing to explain to coworkers that don't, that don't know, right. You know, where where did you go today? Well, you know, I went yeah. over to the Hilton and just bet on the horses <laughs> right. all day. No, I was at the fucking police station waiting to be fingerprinted and processed as a horrible person. So there are a lot of roadblocks and a lot of hassles. And so I think the moment that I just let completely go was I got I got back from my probation officer's meeting you know i need to go back to work but i went back to my apartment and i laid down on the floor of the living room and just i felt like i was taking a deep breath for the first time in years Mm. because i mean basically this guy has said 
you're done. Like you've paid your debt six months yeah, early. Yeah. And, it, and, and he sees then, all it, it always types see, of it, bad guys. It always, cause I have to call every night and, and you know, if they call out my color, then I have to figure out a way to get to the place to give my P test or whatever in the time allotted, even though I'm trying to do my job. And it just, it always feels like they're after you until it's mm-hmm. over. And then, then you're like, Oh, Fucking thank God. And and that probation <laughs> officer, he was the toughest one I had. I had three and he was the scariest one. And so when he called me in, I was like, ah, oh, God damn. They, they must have figured out some way to fucking yeah. hammer me back. You know, it was, uh, so it was, uh, it was a shock and then a relief. And I did feel at that moment, like I'm a person again, just a, just some, asshole again which is all i want mm-hmm. you know <laughs> um so during one of the episodes i think it was this one um you talked about your brother-in-law getting you a job why did that make you cry uh, well my my brother-in-law kevin is his name uh he really went to bat for me. I mean, he is he was the CFO of a company that at that time owned 13 franchise Red Robins and a couple uh standalone restaurants and he talked me into their office as uh an accounting clerk and a marketing assistant. So I had two bosses. I had the lady who ran the accounting department and the lady who ran the marketing. And I split my time between helping them, and it was a it was an eight eight dollars and ten cents an hour job. And he, you know, he asked all of them, and and he walked out of the room and let them vote on whether or not I could be allowed to work there. Um, they said, were you yes. there for this vote? No, I was still in prison. I, you know, he was. This was like uh-huh. a couple months in advance. I was at SeaTac. And so they, he told your whole story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he told them everything, and and then they they voted on it. And the thing is, he's such a likable dude. It was a sure thing, right? They were going to give me a chance, <laughs> right? Because because uh, out of all the the people at that company, he was a very very small minority owner in those businesses. Um, but he he it was a big part of the success of those businesses, and he was beloved by the by the employees. So he got me in and I, I got in there and I couldn't believe how, how nice everyone was, but I got over that and, mm-hmm. um, you know, learn the business side of it, learn the accounting side of it, learn the marketing side of it. And a couple of years in, maybe a year and a half in, um, we, uh, Kevin and one of the other partners, owners, decided to invest in Papa John's and they acquired the franchise rights to Seattle and Portland. And so at the time I was doing a really good job, I think, and everyone seemed to agree that uh, I could be the uh, marketing director for the Papa John's thing. So from minute one, from opening our first restaurant in the U district to the time we opened probably our 43rd or 44th restaurant in Portland um, over like the next eight, nine years, 
something like that. Uh, that was, that was my job and I loved it. And he was such a great person to work for. And, um, when your boss works harder than everyone who works for him, you know, that's, it, it's inspiring. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of love for my brother-in-law and he's the one who helped me put it back together. I didn't ask him to do any of that. I didn't say, Hey, can you hook me up with a job? I had planned on just washing dishes somewhere and just seeing what I could do, you know, mm-hmm. work my way up or whatever. Uh, but he, he gave me a hand up and I'm really grateful and still choked up about it. Mm-hmm. And you guys are still close, right? Yeah. I mean, Kevin is a, he's the greatest. There'll be a ton of people at his funeral. Which he's been working himself into an early grave for a long time, so I imagine it'll happen soon. Um, uh, so let's see. Um, you have mentioned with your recent foot and leg issue that you were on pain medication. Did you mm-hmm. have any reservations taking these drugs and fear that you might become addicted again? No, they don't make me feel like they did back then. Plus, I don't need that because what mm-hmm. it gave me was an ability to deal with social situations with confidence. And I have that. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't need a crutch, you know. Um, and, you know, my stump doesn't hurt that much anymore. So don't need it. Don't ask for it. But you do, you, you have mentioned before that it, they don't actually work for you anymore. Cause that's part of the bad part about opiates, right? Oh, well, yeah, they, they stop, <laughs> they stop working real fast for what they're supposed to work for. But um, I would say that you can, I could probably still get high with them. uh, And I could, and I do, I have treated pain with them, but Mm. um, it's just, it's not where I am in my head or in my life anymore. If I, if I have them on hand, I don't have a mental inventory. Like, you you would when you're an addict. You're like, okay, well, I have six of these yeah. and nine of those. Or <laughs> I know that tramadol makes me feel sick to my stomach, so I never want to eat any of that again. <laughs> okay, so we have a couple of questions from uh, your littlest listeners, your youngest listeners, and they've recorded them for me. So I'm going to play them for you, and then you can answer, okay? You got it. How much money did you make while gambling? That's Aiden. I have made in my life probably hundreds of thousands of dollars gambling. I also have lost in my life <laughs> probably hundreds of thousands of dollars of gambling. Yeah, I think I'm smart. I think I know sports. I think I think <laughs> I win more than fifty percent of my bets. But uh, when you're gambling, you have to win sixty percent. So. Um, because there's something called juice, which Aiden, I can explain to you offline. Uh, <laughs> there's something called the VIG. So I think I've probably more or less broken even in my life uh, just by A, being a savvy gambler, and B, by that pesky juice. Your your ego. Oh, juice. Yeah, that's what yeah. it is. Um, and then here is some uh, advice that Aiden has for anyone going to prison. Don't join gangs because they will shank you in your sleep. Well, I didn't join any gangs, and here I sit. So I would say that's probably he pretty might be solid right. advice. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I was Aiden never tempted to wise. join a gang. 
No one ever asked me to join a gang. I think it, I think it's because I was never, I was never perceived to be enough of any of a particular group to be recruited. It's just to the white guys, I wasn't white enough, and to the black guys, I was way <laughs> a white guy, and to the to the uh, islanders, I was a mercenary. You know, you had uh, terrible just, facial hair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you gotta lose that, bro. Uh, yeah, I was, I I was never like, I was never in demand in the gang world and probably they, (laughs) they knew I was a pussy and I would never stab anyone. (laughs) Okay. So, um, Elliot has a whole bunch of questions for you. So here they are. (laughs) I have some questions. When, what, what was it like to poop in front of other people? And what was it like to play basketball? Was the rules really unfair, or are they just the same? I'm really interested. That's the first set of questions. All right. Uh, the only, the closest I came to actually pooping in front of anyone was when you go to court. You're in a holding cell, and there is no privacy. There are, I think, toilets on either end of the cell and just these long benches. And I, I never had to poop in those situations. Thank God. Some guys <laughs> did. Uh, then at King County jail, there's a toilet and like an open doorway out in the common area. So if you're stuck out of your cell, cause they would, you know, you could choose to be in your cell or out of your cell, but they lock the cells most of the time. You know, there were times they would unlock it and you could go back in. So if you're out of your cell and you had to poop, there was a toilet there. And uh, fortunately, inmates are very resourceful and they found a way to like hang a garbage bag in that doorway. So that if you went back there, sure, everyone could hear what you were doing, but you weren't actually pooping in front of anyone. So yeah, because no I one never... wants to see it either, right? No, no exactly. one wants to see someone pooping, and no one wants to be looked at. <laughs> right, it's not a highlight. Like if you if you had to <laughs> poop in that situation, like in the holding cell, and someone was looking at you, they're out of line. You know, right. <laughs> you're not out of line for having to poop. They're out of line for even looking at you. So that never happened. Yeah, but so basketball. Could... Oh uh, yeah, go ahead with the basketball. Basketball uh, rules are the same in jail, but, uh, don't call a lot of fouls. Don't, don't call traveling. Don't call double dribble. Don't call a lot of fouls. Um, because then you'll just be seen as, um, can I say bitch ass? (laughs) You can say whatever you want. Okay. You'll be seen as a bitch ass and no one will want to play with you. And, uh, eventually someone will slug you in the side of the head and you'll get uh, some stitches and you'll have to say that uh, you <laughs> ran into the chin-up bar or the wall. <laughs> okay. The, that pooping question was hands down the one of the biggest ones that, that we came in. Um, and also it's funny because you have traditionally talked about how you have trouble pooping on demand, especially like when you've had to go to the doctor and be released from the hospital before pooping yeah um so that's it's kind of um 
Interesting. Okay, so here's our next set of questions. Sorry, I added. I forgot to add a couple more things. But what? How were you scared to rob the banks? How did you do it? Please tell me. <laughs> Just, I guess you've already talked about how you did it, but um, were you scared when you did it every single time? I wasn't scared that I would get caught. I was really confident that I wouldn't, but I hated it. It was stressful. Um. Because I didn't want to do it. I didn't like scaring people. I didn't like, you know, I dreaded doing it and I would put it off usually as long as I could. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was scared because I, I had thought it through, you know, I was like, unless there's a cop standing right there and the teller goes, Robber, 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 and points at me. Right. <laughs> then it was I wasn't going to get caught. So, well, and also you were really high. No, right, I would not the... be high when oh. I was. I, I would be as sober as as possible. I mean, because there was that window. <laughs> okay. Um, there's that window in the morning when before it you would get at the least shakes. be a couple hours before I would start really jonesing. I mean, Jones. normally I would yeah. take some pills right away. But I wouldn't on those robbery days because I, I just wanted to be a little more clear, which I, which I could have uh, two or three hours of clarity while not taking pills before I started to need them and start sweating and shaking. Mm-hmm. So okay. those, and the, the ladies and gentlemen, those are your bankers' hours or your bank robbers' hours <laughs> right there from like 8.30 to 11. Um, okay, so here's our last question. Mike, do you have any – did people get to visit you in jail? And what color van did you drive? Were you scared when you went to jail? Please tell me and put this message on the podcast. <laughs> Consider it done. Uh, <laughs> my minivan was beige. I didn't choose the color. It just happened to be the, the, the van <laughs> was that was the one running outside the... the service area <laughs> yeah. after I'd unsuccessfully tried to take a solo test drive at the neighboring Toyota dealership. Um, what was the other one? Did people um, get to visit you in prison? Oh, yeah. You get to submit a visiting list, usually like 10 people that can come see you. Uh, When I first got to jail, King County Jail, I had some people come to visit me pretty quickly because you didn't, the process wasn't that involved in King County Jail because there was Mm -hmm. no contact. It was all behind glass. Uh, when you get to federal prison, you have to get your list and get people approved and they have to pass background checks because they, you're going to have contact and they don't want like some drug dealer coming to see you to, you know, pass some drugs to you or whatever. So, right. <laughs> um, I didn't have a lot of people come see me in prison at Sheridan because it was a long way away from where anybody I knew really was. And, uh, visitors were kind of a hassle because, uh, you would not only have to get dressed up in your you know, your best khakis or whatever, but you would have to strip coming in in and out of the visiting room and you know lift up your junk and spread your butt cheeks and it was a whole involved thing and uh, and then you'd be like waiting all day for for them to call you for the visiting. So I didn't ask for or really want a lot of visitors at Sheridan. I didn't have enough time to where I was like, oh, I have to see everybody. I knew I was going to get out pretty soon. I mean, I more or less had like a college 
a college experience plus a year, you know. So, oh, and I you went just wrote to, letters and called. I, I wrote crazy letter. I mean, nobody was lacking for being in touch with me when I was in prison. <laughs> nobody who wanted to be in touch with me, with me was not in touch with me. But uh, visits, not so much. And then when I got back to SeaTac, I was so short. I was nine months short. And a couple of people came to see me, but almost everyone, I just said, I'll see you. I'll see you when I get out. <laughs> you don't have to do this shit. You know, I don't want to, I mean, come on. Most of my, most of my people are just white middle-class people. They don't want to be going down to some fucking jail. Right. Right. And you don't want to miss any, whatever sports was on that exactly. day. Exactly. Cause usually be on the weekends <laughs> and I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. I wanted to watch that Clemson game. Yeah, like, like if you had a wife or a kid or something like that, then maybe. But oh yeah, did right. your ex-wife ever come to visit? No, she had. Uh, she decamped. Oh, she had moved for, back. Yeah, for for Louisiana um, before I turned myself in. Mm-hmm. All right, um, Mike. I just wanted to say thank you for indulging me in this project. <laughs> I don't uh, feel like I've indulged <laughs> you. I feel like you've indulged a lot me. of hours. <laughs> I've I've told a um, lot more boring stories. <laughs> um, do you have any last words before we wrap this up? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I want to say thank you, Christy, because I did feel like we're, it was a pretty comprehensive interview I did with them, but there, there are so many more stories that make it a lot more human and make it a lot more instructive for people. I know I said during the what we just played tonight that if anyone sees themselves or finds themselves at any point of the journey I had until, you know, I finally turned myself in, um, just reach out because nobody's going to tell on you. And I have had people who were struggling with addiction since they started to hear my story, reach out to me. And it's very welcome, and I, I would, I'm not going to tell anyone. And, you know, despite my reputation, <laughs> I'm not going to tell anyone <laughs> your secret. And we can help you. You can get help before you completely ruin your life and, and the lives of others. So if. Yeah, there's tons of resources person, out there. Yes. And, and I didn't avail myself of any of them because I'm an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I could have been the well, greatest bank robber that ever got away with everything if I had had, had uh, availed myself of any services at any time. But I was a dummy, and please don't be that dummy. I think that also back when you were doing it, it was a little bit um, less known. It was a, a lot more secret. I mean, of course, it's called like Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous, but I mean, everybody knows someone that's in a, in a treatment program now. Right. I mean, like everybody yeah. has that uncle or husband or sister or brother, you know? Um, so it's, it's not something that you have to rob banks over or, um, go to prison. Just reach out. Um, any of us can help you direct you to any place that you can. And we have lots of wide resources, wide nets of, yeah. of, um, of people that can help you in whatever state that you're in. I can uh, say this too, Christy, like if someone reached out to me right now and, and they were in the state that I was in and they were considering stealing, 
to take care of whatever addiction they're into. Um, of course, I'm going to try to talk you out of it. Mm-hmm. Of course. But I also understand if, if, if you're not ready and let's talk about it. Right. Um, so I'd like to give a special um, thanks to my co-producers of today's episode, which were um, probably going to slaughter everyone's names, but Jack Taylor, Bob Stein, Ken Fulton, Megan Coughlin, uh, Sarah Reinthurler. How do you say that, Mike? Um, Ryan. Some, something slightly <laughs> off from what you just said. Okay. <laughs> Ken Fulton, Aiden McQueen, Elliot Phoenix. Oh, I know that Jeff one. Jeff Richardson. McQuillan. <laughs> McQuillan. Oh, damn it. <laughs> um, Jeff Richardson, Don Hafner, Dr. Rob, and Dana Steele. Thank you so much for submitting all of your questions. You yeah, thank you. I, you guys kind of in, inspired me to remember some things that I had had gotten hazy on. So thank you. Yeah, and you told a lot of stories that I haven't heard from the various times you've told these stories. So that well, was really great. Get, get ready. I'm going to tell the Charles Barkley story again here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, here it comes. That's the Easter egg, everybody. All right, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, Christy. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess should we go out in our normal fashion? Because this Let's is the it. end of it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Until next time, this is the next party. And we love you, Jen. I especially love you. And thank you for um, for helping me put together the life that I love so much. Oh, and I love you, Mike. Have a oh, good night, everyone. You got me. <laughs> when I hear that robin sing, well, I know it's coming on spring. Ooh-wee. And we're starting a new life. I've been shoveling the snow away, working hard for my pain. All I gotta say. Yes, we're starting a new life We gonna move Way on down the line Girl, we'll be standing one place Too long a time When I hear that Robin song Well, I know it won't be long Find out where we belong Yeah, we're starting a new life
Now we started. 